This, this time, the youth, you guys are free to go. If you're in junior high or high school, feel free to head on out to your own. Uh, there's a Sunday school uh, fashion teaching going on over there, so just uh, continue on focused in that. Otherwise, we are here, and we're locked into the Christmas season. How, well, how was your guys' Thanksgiving? Was it good? Yeah. It's okay. We can get excited. That's good stuff. I like that. And this has been an awesome thing. Thank the worship team this morning. They do a great job just praising God for what they've been up to. So... Also, as we're moving forward, this season's been has been interesting for me. We've done some adjustments. We've moved, and so my wife and I kind of looked at each other. And we're like, "Hey, let's let, let's let's uh, let's do something different." She's like, oh, "I want the kids to have their own tree." So, sure, we went out and got ourselves. Actually, we went yesterday and got ourselves a Charlie Brown Christmas tree kind of size thing. Anybody ever had a Charlie Brown Christmas tree? Because you had to, you know. It's like they're awesome. This thing's about this tall. The whole backside has nothing on it. It's perfect. And uh, so, and the kids picked it out. So that's what's great about. And so we, we got this thing set up in its stand, and we're like, have fun. You know, you guys get to decorate it. And we gave them a, a string of lights, and the colored lights, they get the colored lights. My wife wants the white lights. And so they start stringing it and doing this stuff, and they ran into the perennial Christmas problem, right? They plug it in, and there are no lights. And I understand I was just rebuked last service that this is no longer a problem because LED lights do not do this anymore. But anyway, these are old lights. One light goes out. The whole strand doesn't work. It's a mess. And uh, my kids are like, we don't want the colored lights. You know, that's kind of like how we work nowadays. These don't work. I'm buying new ones, you know, instead of what we used to do, right? What did we have to do? As dads, as I watched my dad do this. One light went out, nothing worked, right? And when there was the old electric lights, what you have to do? You had to unscrew every single one and test it. Every single one and test it all day long. Your dad's out there cussing and he doesn't cuss. And, you know, it's this whole problem in his life. Because it's like the stress of holidays is the Christmas lights and the Christmas decorations. I think I moved into a neighborhood that's like trying to be the next big stop on the map for Christmas lights. We're like, our house is going to be dark. Uh, So it's kind of a a nerve-wracking thing for us. But what I love about all this stuff is it becomes a parable to me. Those old Christmas lights become a symbol of reminding me about provision at Christmas. Something about what God is doing and the stress of Christmas and the ridiculousness of Christmas. See, most of us enjoy the cheesecloth-covered Christmas, right? Where you're watching it through, a, through the rose-colored glasses and Mary and Joseph, they come into town and, oh, is there room in the end? No, okay, we'll go over to the animals, bleed, bleed, and they're all cleaned up and, you know, nice. But we're not going to do that this Christmas because, you know what, let's face it, you just got off Thanksgiving. And for some of you, Thanksgiving wasn't that good. You faced that uncle, that aunt, that, that brother, that sister. You know, the food didn't really work well. There wasn't really that much money for food in the first place. It was a small huddle because the kids are gone somewhere else. There's all kinds of reasons why sometimes Thanksgiving doesn't work well, and you've entered into Christmas, and we're supposed to be happy, happy, joy, joy, you know, kind of really excited and, and motivated about the, the joy of Christmas and the wonder of Christmas and all this stuff. And I, wanna, I don't want to knock that. I want to keep that because there is joy. There is excitement in Christmas. There's also that underlying reality that all of us are facing, that Christmas time is a lot like any other time of the year, just a little bit more stressful. And, and so what I want to do is I want to talk about this other portion that, that fits in, because as a, being part of Olive Branch, there's a unique piece happening, and that is that we call ourselves to be passionate Christ followers. We want to change everyday people into a community of passionate Christ followers. And a lot of us are sitting there looking at this passionate Christ following, and it's doing what God's called us to do. And what does that mean? So you're praying, and you're, and you're looking for God to use you, and you're looking for God to, to take you and, and, and do something through your life and in your neighborhood or in your workplace now. And you're just going, this is miserable. I thought this was supposed to be better. 
I thought this was supposed to be good. I go to work and it's still crazy stressful people and I get tired on the commute home and I come home and I'm barking at the kids or I'm barking at my wife and I don't want to be doing that and I'm going to, and I'm going to holiday things. I'm quiet and sullen and all this stuff is there in the middle of the season. Anybody with me? No, we're all perfect and happy, Greg. This is Southern California. Anybody with me? Okay, there are some people out there. Good, this is for you guys today. The rest of you get depressed. I'm just kidding. No, but what I really want to do is, I think what's fascinating is what we've done to the Christmas story. And I want to look at the Christmas story for what it says in the text. We're going to just be simply Christmas, for real. What was going on in that first Christmas is really fascinating when you get and dig just enough into the history and you begin to examine what was going on. And it begins to open up some reality to us that maybe we've been ignoring a little bit because we don't want our Christmases to, be, to have this part of it, but it does. And I think it'll make the light shine brighter this year as you begin to realize what God is doing. And you can begin to breathe a sigh of relief that, ah, you're not the only one that's wrestling a little bit at Christmas. So let's, let's open our Bibles. In fact, let's go there to this, to this first passage, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And, and this is the Christmas story. If you've never been through your Bible, or maybe you've been just new to your Bible and you haven't got here yet, this is the Christmas story. So feel free, grab a Bible, page 807. Join with us right here on page one, or on chapter one, verse 18. And it begins this way. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is an interesting start. It has a lot of historical pieces to it. So let's unpack this a little bit. Go back up to verse 18. It says that his Mary mother, uh, Mary, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. This word betrothed is not a normal thing in, um, in our culture. In fact, we think of it as engagement, but it's not that. If you've been a Christian a long time, you've heard this before. So this is for everybody who hasn't heard this piece yet. The ancient first century world was kind of the opposite of our world. If you're not a Christian and, and you haven't been instructed in this, it's typically most people today sleep together, then they live together, then they get married. That's pretty much how it works in our secular environment. See, the ancient world was completely the opposite. When you met, you got your father brought you as a son or the daughter to, to the person that you were going to get married. They picked out for you, and this is an arranged marriage. When they had chosen this person, they had gone through a lot of thought and a lot of prayer and a lot of consideration who you would marry, and then you sat down with an actual document, and they signed the document, a dowry was given, and you were officially joined together, legally speaking. So the commitment was first made by your families. Then, and then there was no living together and no sleeping together until the wedding day, at which point you would be shamed in the ancient society for any of that. And so this is called betrothal. Between that document being signed and the day you get married is a betrothal. And you are officially a man and wife. We don't call it marriage, but it was betrothal. That's what they've entered into. Now here's the problem. Joseph is sitting there with his dreams. He's grown up a young Jewish boy. He's become, he understands what family is. He knows it's endowed by God. Marriage is this very special, sacred thing that passes the, the lineage of his father on, the honor of his father on. He has dreams about what he will do and what they will do and how it will work. And she comes pregnant. And he knows one thing. That's not mine. Now that's stressful enough. 
until you realize that this word here, right here, look at verse 18. And Joseph and her husband Joseph, being just men, unwilling to put her to shame, say shame. That word is not used the same in our culture. We shame, oh, shame, shame, shame. You know, kind of like shaming is like yelling at somebody or something. In the honor shame society, it is different. We live in a guilt society. We live in a society that we feel right and wrong. And shame and honor societies are radically different. It's about your immediate circles of family and your immediate connections and the rank you have amongst your peers. And so when you have honor, you have a high ranking amongst those who are surrounding you from your culture. And it's because you held up to all the cultural mores, all the cultural rules, and you did it well. When you break a cultural rule, like if you're a Muslim and you live in a culture of honor, shame, and you don't, and you cease being a Muslim, you are shamed in the family. If you want to marry a non-Muslim, you are shamed. What does shaming look like? You get sat down with uncle, aunt, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brother, sister, cousins, and everyone, and they together tell you why what you're doing is going to destroy the family and kill your grandmother. And so the pressure is borne on by the entire family that if you do this, you're dishonoring all of our name. You're dragging it through the mud. In the ancient world, when Joseph is sitting there staring at Mary, who says she's pregnant, he's going, this is not good. This will dishonor my parents. This will dishonor my brothers. This will dishonor my sisters, especially this will, give us a, this will dishonor Nazareth. This will dishonor anybody who's lived here. This will dishonor them the north, which will dishonor Israel, which will dishonor us in the sight of God. That's how this stuff works. So the only right move is to divorce Mary and do it publicly that she would be seen as an adulteress, understood as an adulteress, her family would be shamed, and likely she would be killed. And so Joseph, looking at this situation, decides, I'm going to save face, I'm going to save the honor of my family, and I'm going to honor and care for her, so I'm going to get divorced, and we're going to do it quietly. She can keep this to herself. The shame would reside on her family then. They would have their own explanations to do, but he then would not be considered a part of it, and the family wouldn't be ashamed. This is huge. The first Christmas began not with happy tidings of a baby is coming, it began with stress of the thought of losing family. And yet, Joseph receives a dream, verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, here's this, this powerful situation. It's suddenly gotten worse. Imagine you have all this stress, all this shame, all this stuff that you're going to carry, all this dishonor that you could bring to your family, and you decide, I'm going to solve it right, good for her, good for me, go to bed. God says, I want to use you. Who doesn't want to be used by God? Who in this room as a Christian, honestly in their heart, does not want God to use them in some way? 
either to bring somebody to the Lord, either to see prayer start and just for people to be healed. God, we want God to use us. It's just part of why we come to Christ. We believe God wants to use us. We want him to use us. And here, Joseph's being told, I want to use you. In fact, I want to use you to bring something about. This boy, is, is you're going to name Jesus, is going to save his people from their sins. He is going to be the answer to the problem of Adam and Eve. He is going to be the solution everybody's been looking for. I'm providing for the world an ultimate provision, and that's where this begins. God was giving his ultimate provision for the world. This is the first observation I want to make from the text. That he was not offering Joseph a small journey, a small piece, like he's going to be the forgotten dad of Jesus. No, he's going to be the provider that keeps this kid alive, that raises him in the, in the knowledge of the scriptures, who does everything that was Jewish that needed to be done. He was going to represent his father in heaven on earth. And he says, Joseph, you're the man. Joseph, this guy is not only going to do this, he's going to save his people from their sins. All of this wraps together. For, for those of you who are kind of getting into the Bible and starting to grow in it, or maybe you've never read the Bible, the first half here, all the way up to this point, is called the Old Testament. Way back in the beginning, there's been these promises that have been given. First Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, he's saying, I promise you a seed that's going to come crush the serpent, destroy the person who brought the problem. Then there's this promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. Then comes this promise through all the lineage up to Moses. says there's going to be a prophet who's going to lead the people like I led the people. Then comes to David. You're never going to have a guy who's not on the throne. There's going to be a great king, and he's going to sit on the throne for eternity. And then through Isaiah and all these prophets, you find out this king is going to take their sins and bear the sins of the people and lead people into righteousness and, and save the poor from their poverty. And the mourning will become rejoicing. It's this whole picture called the Messiah. We know the word today is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's his title. And what he was told here is, listen, Joseph, you are going to bear or be the father of the Messiah, the Christ. He's going to save his people from the sins. Now, we're sitting here thinking, yeah, everybody wanted to be part of it. Everybody wanted to have the Messiah out of their lineage. Everybody wanted to be the, the parents of the Messiah. I mean, come on. But weigh it. God is wanting to bless Joseph, but this blessing comes with a gigantic cost. The cost of shaming his family, the cost of not getting work. He's saying, here, I want you to provide for the kid, the Messiah, the, 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 the son of God. Um, by the way, you're going to be so shamed, you're probably not going to have work. You're probably going to wrestle at poverty level. You're going to eke out existence. It's not indicated that Joseph grew up in poverty. It may be that Joseph became a carpenter because that was the job he could get considering his father did something else, perhaps, because the shame would have pushed Joseph out of the house. And what we have here is a very real situation where Joseph had to weigh, do I want to do what God wants me to do? Do I want to be a part of what God's doing? This ultimate provision for the world... Or do I want my comforts and what I thought my life was going to be like? And so we're left here with this question. What will Joseph do? In verse 24, we get the answer. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name 
Jesus. And you get this picture that Joseph was faithful to the call that God had given him. But this is interesting to me because what we see here is to be a part of what God is up to, be a part of what God is doing, we're going to have to expect a cost. Christmas is reminding us of something, that God's up to something, he's doing something great, and every time he starts to move, there's often a cost associated with being a part of what he's doing. I think we've, we, we forget, we think, we pray, God provide for us, God provide for us, but we don't realize that when God provides for us, it's not so we can hold on to it. Go back, think about it, These, this chain of lights. Those crystals, you plug it on one side and the current would run through light, 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 all the way through. And yet if one burned out, the whole strand would go out in old cases. Then it got to, if one went out, everything beyond that went out. And I want you to think about those for a second because what's gone on is God's offered a provision. He's granted this provision of his son to bear our sins on the cross. The sins, the things that make us guilty inside, the things that we glory in in our worst days and feel guilty about in the morning because of what we've done. And we know we'll stand before God and be judged for it. He says, I will bear those for you. That's the provision. And that current starts flowing. Light, 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 and now it's come to you. Will it go dark? Will the strand beyond you be off? You see, we know there's a cost. You gotta, in order to give away what you've received, you gotta give the cost up. You gotta be willing to say, yes, I'm gonna let go. And right now at Christmas, some of us are wrestling with what God wants us to do and what we wanna do. And maybe God's called you to be debt-free. He called you to that idea of proper living, good stewardship with your finances. And to be somebody who is, who is on a budget and saving things and in comes Christmas and all your traditions and the kids got to be happy and the grandkids got to have their new stuff and good stuff and, and stuff that's going to end up broken within 24 hours, guaranteed. And, the, and they're sitting there and you're going, this, this is the stuff, we got to have the stuff. And the shiny, shiny plastic card comes out. Only willing to make problems for next year Though God has called you to something else. Maybe it's you've been called to reconcile with a brother or a sister so that you can have a, a unity and a happy Christmas and there's not all this distrust and brokenness in your home, but it's going to cost you face. It's going to cost the time. It's going to cost the pain. It's going to cost the embarrassment of, a, of, of accepting that you did something wrong. Maybe God's calling you to do, to do that sacrificial thing. You've been wanting to do it for years. You've been wanting to go maybe down to the park and, and hang out with homeless people so your kids can get the idea of what it means to actually care for somebody instead of just getting stuff all the time. Or maybe it's that you want to go on a mission trip, but you know it's going to cost some money, and suddenly the presents are important, but are they as important as what maybe God might be calling you to? Whenever we make a move for God, there will be a cost. And for some of us, we've stepped out after what God's called us to do. We've stepped into the direction he's told us to go. And you know what? We're going, is this worth it? Because this cost is pretty heavy. This cost is pretty difficult to struggle with. And that's what Joseph was doing. He's sitting there and he's looking at this cost and he's facing this cost and he's being the light and it's on. And he's going, is this worth it? Has God just called us to something good just so we can suffer? Is that what God's up to? Well, let's see. Let's continue the story. Chapter 2. 
Beginning in verse 1, we have suddenly a change of scenery. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now we fast forward. We're skipping the section in Bethlehem. We'll get there next week. But um, what we're doing now is we're kind of moving forward to the next section that Matthew thought was important. And it's a picture of these men called wise men. Oh, wise men. No, they're kings, right? No, there's three of them, right? No. None of the stuff we think of here is really true. If you want to get an idea, these are the psychics coming to come worship Jesus. These are the, not the psychics, they're the astrologers. Basically, these guys are stargazers. They're, they're sitting there reading their horoscopes in Pisces going, hey, that's pretty. Actually, they wrote it, and that's the point. These guys are pagans living in Babylon, staring at the stars, hoping to find out some kind of meaning from them. And while they're in Babylon, there's been these traditions passed down from this, this guy that they've heard of named Daniel. He was a prophet kind of guy and to the Israelites, but he was just sort of one of, their, one of their other wise men that they've all heard about, a really renowned wise man that uh, Nebuchadnezzar liked. And they've read some of his prophecies, and they've seen some, and they say about roughly around this time, there's supposed to be some kind of king born. And so they're watching the stars, and suddenly something in the heavens makes them go, Whoa, there's a king being born. Now, there's some interesting websites out there that I've been checking out. What is this star? And what is going on here? And what is all this stuff? And um, the one that I'm settling on right now is, is um, whether it's an angel or whether it's, Jup- uh, whether it's a Jupiter coming up and doing some interesting stuff up in the sky around the time of Jesus' birth. I have a debate about that, but the, it's interesting to note there are scientific observations and there are also spiritual understandings that can combine here to look at, but I'll leave that to your guys' own research. But what ha, what's important here is that these guys are not Jewish. They are like way out there kind of spiritual people. They're, they're watching the stars. And here they come into Jerusalem, the Jewish home. And they, uh, they come up to King Herod. Now, King Herod is a false king. He's, the Jews don't like him. They don't like that he calls himself a king. He's not of the line of David. He's not even Jewish. He's a Demian, which is from the south. And so you can read it this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of, the, of Herod, the false king, behold, really weird pagan astrologers from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, now you get the idea of what's going on in the text. This is bizarre. This isn't normal. And they're not just three of them. There's probably an entourage with their camels and their guards and everything else looking really Babylonian coming from Parthia, another empire that's the sworn enemy of Rome, marching into town. So you can understand that Herod's a little worried. So they came to him and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That sounds strange coming from pagans' lips. Hercules is being born. And we want to worship him. That's kind of what it sounds like. You only worship gods. Why are they coming to worship a king of Jews? This is is all strange. So when when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. I bet. I actually think that's kind of a funny phrase. If you know anything about Herod, this is later in his life. He's going to die within two years after this event, if not even a year. At this point, he's pretty much stark raving mad with power. He knows his life is coming to an end. He's been ticked off enough times about people trying to take his kingship. He had his two favorite sons killed. Mark that, his favorite sons, so that it was a joke. It's better to be Herod's pig than his kid. And it was in in Greek that translates really well. But 
not in English. And what's going on here is that you have this ridiculous fear that's now roaming through Jerusalem that Herod's going to kill somebody else. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. All Jerusalem with him and assembling all chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall, for from you shall come a ruler." who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Notice he's kind of doing his homework, gathering people together, figuring out what he's going to do. He's going to kill this kid. He doesn't want him. He wants to keep the, king, the kingdom. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. They didn't know where to go. He said, there, it's in Bethlehem. Go there. And so go search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You're going, this is, this, what's this have to do with, with, with anything? This seems really good. Except for the fact that probably if you put it in Joseph and Mary's term, why are they still in Bethlehem? It's apparently a few years later. It's likely the family left without them. They don't have any money. They're probably trying to eke out an existence where they can, where their shame is less down in Bethlehem than up in Nazareth. So they find themselves stuck. Stuck here in Bethlehem, trying to keep the future king of the Jews alive. With Herod breathing down their neck, only down the block, Bethlehem's only a, only a few miles away from Jerusalem. It was really close. And now, this whole time, they're trying to keep this kid under the radar. And in marches pagan weird people who are looking at the stars, come in and say, it's the king! Now, you think anybody followed him from Jerusalem? You betcha. There's a whole crowd following this team going, what in the world are these weirdos doing here? This is cool. What is going on here? I'm walking around into Bethlehem, looking at what's going on. There's this king, the Messiah. Everybody's murmuring about the Messiah. Maybe this Messiah is here. What's going on? These guys find the Messiah. They're all crowding around the house. This is no longer secret. And Herod knows. And if you're Joseph, who's supposed to keep the kid alive, and you've been trying to raise money for the kid to stay alive, you're stressed out. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Everybody knows about this now. Everybody's looking at this. I can't get out of here. I don't have money. I don't have any ability. The three, the three wise men, see how it's ingrained in our heads? These, these wise men guys get up, and boom, off they go. The magi are gone. They had a dream. They're gone. By the way, the dream was, they probably told Joseph, because we have it recorded, hey, Herod's going to kill the kid. We're out of here. Bye. Well, that's great. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, verse 13 says. Rise, take the child, his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, which is no small deal. Probably had to take the back road through the desert, which added about 20 miles onto a 70-mile journey because they couldn't go up through Jerusalem. 
because they don't go toward the person who's going to take you. And so what happens is these guys have a journey to make they have no money for and they don't know how until you realize that the provision was laid right there in front of them in those boxes. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Sure, I could go into the symbolism of what all that stuff means. Royalty and the death. No, no, let's just put it this way. You know what frankincense means? Money. You know what gold means? Money. You know what myrrh means? Money. They were all expensive. And these aren't little like things. It says treasure. They open the boxes, the gifts. These guys were given plenty. How in the world do they survive down in Egypt with no job and all that shame? God provided it for them. This is important to note because this leads into a couple of thoughts. Will God just really leave you stranded, not providing for you if you've taken up what he's called you to do and, and you're paying the cost? No, God will provide. In fact, he provides for us so we can provide for others. The Magi apparently had been provided for. They were provided signs in the sky. They were provided information. They were provided an opportunity to see a Messiah that honestly wasn't even theirs. And here's what's beautiful about this. Everybody agrees that what Matthew is doing here is he's trying to say the message of the gospel will abound even to the nations. These are our ancestors, guys. If you're not Jewish, see, it's our ancestors I've got witch doctors in my background somewhere then. I've got crazy Celtic warriors wearing absolutely nothing, yelling and screaming in their beards as they go out to fight the Romans. I've got the people who sacrifice human beings to make the gods happy. My ancestry is ugly, dirty, nasty, because it's pagan. And the gospel transformed those people. And the gospel continues to transform people. But it's only if we understand that we are provided for to provide for others, that the gifts we receive are not for us, they are for us to give away. Isn't this what Jesus did? He came to give us himself. Joseph had to deny himself. He had to deny his dreams and his visions to give a life to this child who would then give a life to us who are Christians today. Guys, the gospel has come down that chain of lights. It's on, it's on, it's on, it's on, it's on, and it's sitting in your lap, not so that we could just hold on to it, but so that we would pass it to the next light, to the next light, and the next light, so that we would be a conduit of God's provision. If you're going to be a conduit of God's provision, it will cost you. Blessing comes with cost. And when that cost comes, it's because we are providing for someone else. We're not being the dead sea that just floats in and goes nowhere. No, it comes to us and we give it away. It comes to us and we bless another. You are blessed to be a blessing. And that comes with the gospel to the nations so that even those who today are still staring at the stars who are still wondering at the smoke and looking at their tea leaves can come to the conclusion that there is one who can give them truth. There is one who can save them from their sins, and that is Jesus who is born on Christmas Day. This is important for us to note because if we understand this, there's a provision you've been given that perhaps God's calling you to provide for others. There's a windfall that's come in in your life, and it might be monetary, it might be spiritual with the gospel. It might, you might find that it's actually just your presence. Time. There are so many ways that God uses what he's provided for us to provide for others. But if we get caught up in a Satan's made this holiday, which is all about what can I get, we'll forget that what we get is so that we can give. 
that all the blessings that we've received as Americans is so that we can bless. And when we understand that we stand right in the stream of what's going on in the gospel, that we've been provided for to be a provision, just as the energy that comes to one light is provided to go to the next. But also, it's interesting that the Magi's worship is important to note. Re- read again with me. Go back up to verse 2. What did they say they're going to do? They're going to go search diligently. Or sorry, verse 8. Go search diligently for the child when you found, or found him. I want to worship him too. That's Herod. Sorry, we'll move forward. Go on to verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him and opened their treasures, offering him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I want to point something out. Their worship, their bowing down and giving the treasures, that was their worship. Guys, God can help you know how to provide for others by just one simple way. Just worship him. Your worship can often become a provision. And that's what's so important to note. We are provided his presence so that we can provide for others. We can worship God and become a provision. Let me give you some examples. This morning, when some of you were standing out there shaking hands, You didn't do it because you just had to do it. You're doing it because it was part of your worship of God. And in that provision of shaking a hand, you help somebody take a deep breath who's never been here before, who honestly walked on this campus and went, I don't know where my kids are supposed to go, and are sitting in here right now going, I don't know where my kids are. You know, that's the whole feeling that's going on when you're new. And to get a handshake, to get somebody to help direct you, to help somebody walk you through something and just pouring out the love of God because you have something to provide. When this team gets up here after working their tails off all week long to provide an opportunity for us to sing out to God and to worship him, they are coming from their worship, providing you a chance to worship. Our worship becomes other people's provision. I grew up in a church. My senior pastor used to, at the end of every service, we'd all stand up, link hands, and sing a kind of a um, a song, and I never liked the song. It was kind of like, why are we doing this? I have to hold this person's hand. And I'm an introvert. You're in my personal space. You know, that's all the stuff I'm thinking while we're at the end. I'm a wonderful spiritual person. And, um, and we're doing that. One day he just says, you know, people ask me why we do this. And he, and, he, and he looked at the crowd, and he said, you know why? Because when I would do this, one day a woman came up to me, and she said, I love it that we hold hands at the end of service. It is the only time in the week I'm ever touched. And in that moment, in our worship, it was provision to somebody else. Because you never know when your act of sacrifice for God, when you're writing that check, when you're going to serve those people, when you're showing up at church to simply count money, share music, speak a message, pray with some people, go to and pour out some coffee. You never know when your worship is provision for somebody who needs it. You never know when you come in here with your burdens and your cares and you unload them on God and you lift up your hands and you worship him and you cry out to him that somebody next to you who knows what you're going through doesn't go, you've provided for me hope because I see God can do something in great distress. Let God use what he's provided in you and to you as a provision for others. And oftentimes that comes through our worship as it came to Joseph and Mary. But finally, realize that God's not going to leave you. You pay that cost. You walk after what God's called you to do. He's not going to leave you in suffering. In fact, what he's going to do is ultimately going to provide for us in the end. I can, I can promise that. Here, I've got three gifts. You've got gold, frankincense, and myrrh provided for them everything that they needed. But guys, this is a pattern throughout the scriptures. You think Joseph was a happy guy sitting in the middle of a jail? I'm talking about Old Testament Joseph. 
Some of you haven't read that part yet, but those of you who know the story, this guy got thrown into jail or got thrown into slavery by his brothers, then thrown into jail for fall, of a false accusation. This guy is sitting in the worst case of his life, and God finally provides for him, pulls him out, and gives him new stress called being a ruler. Noah is sitting there preaching for 100, 100 years. Nobody's listening, and yet in the very end, God provides him the ark. He gets in, he shuts the door, and God provides him the way through. God provides for Adam and Eve garments that weren't supposed to be theirs because they had sinned. God always in his grace and his mercy in the end will provide for you. How do I know this? Because Jesus promised it. The disciples asked this question in Jesus' ministry. In the book of Luke, they said, hey, Peter looked at him and said, after he'd said that things are impossible for rich men can't be saved, uh, Jesus says, this. he's like, what's, what, what's in the world? It's impossible What's possible for, impossible for men is possible for God. And then Peter responds, see, we've left all our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or his wife or his brothers or his parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let me rephrase this for you. There is no one in here who is Given away money that hasn't returned to them. Given away their pride to reconcile with their brother or sister. Who hasn't sacrificed a tradition for the sake of connection. Who hasn't willingly given up something in their life for the sake of Christ. That in this time and in the age to come will not be received back. And ultimately, in eternal life. Guys, God will ultimately provide. He's given us his son, Jesus. And Jesus bore the sins on the cross and rose from the dead to give us a new life, to give us an opportunity that all the things that we've given up may go for the greater purpose of seeing others know him, be removed from judgment and hell. And in the end, it will be worth it. And I don't know where you're at in the journey. If you've paid the cost, if there's a cost you have to pay, if you're looking at what God's called you to do and you're scared to death of it, know that God will not leave you in the suffering. But through Christ, he will provide. And it will come. Remain steadfast. Keep going. Joseph did, and God provided. Jesus did, and God provided. And so all who take on his name as Christians should. Would you bow your heads with me? You're a Christian in the room right now. You're part of the Olive Branch family. Right now, maybe you've got to think through something that God's calling you to do with your provisions. Some way that you should pass that on and be a blessing to someone else. Maybe it's a cost you've been unwilling to pay, but you know now that you, you need to take that step forward. But maybe you're in this room this morning and you've never received Christ. Can I, can I tell you something? That there is a provision for everyone on this planet in Jesus. God made one solution for the problem of sin. What is sin? Sin is that junk inside of you that makes you embarrassed, that makes you compensate, that makes you afraid that if you were ever discovered, you'd be shown as a fake. 
It's that thing we deny when we've done something wrong. We argue that we've done it all perfectly. We, we try to show, we posture and we do all these things so nobody has to know what's really going on deep down inside. That's sin. That's what it's done to you. God already knows it. What God has done is he's come and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear that guilt and to bear sin on himself on the cross. That if you would accept that, he would forgive you of your sins. Not just the ones you've done, but for the totality of your life of sins. And in that forgiveness, he sets us free from the day of judgment. And he comes into our life because he's risen from the dead to make us new and have a relationship with the God of the universe. And God comes and dwells in our lives. He ceases to be some idea in the heavens, but he comes the God who lives with us that we know that speaks to us and leads us and guides us. And that comes through the gift that God's provided in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's what you need. You need a guarantee that your sins have been dealt with finally. You need to have that opportunity to know God for real. Yeah, it comes with a cost. You may have to abandon some sins. You may have to back away, but you don't do it first. God wants to receive you just where you're at. Then he'll walk with you as he calls you to count through those costs of abandoning those sins. I want you to know that you're going to have to do that because you should make this decision rightfully and bravely. But God will walk you through those things that you need to abandon to follow him. But for now, he wants to accept you through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he offers you his son. If you'd like to receive forgiveness of sins, if you'd like to receive that new life and begin that journey with God, I'll give you that chance right now. You just put your hand up. I'd love to walk with you in prayer right now and this morning. Just make that decision. Say, I'm after you, God. I need that forgiveness. right where you're at, then take this minute and, and begin this, this prayer time right where you're at. There's those sins that are inside of you, just confess them to God. Tell them about them. Tell him about them. As you list those out, then now turn away from them. It's called repentance. You're turning away and, and turn to God and ask God to take those sins and put them upon Christ on the cross. Let him know that you trust that you've been forgiven of your sins. And you trust that Jesus has taken your punishment for you. Now ask him to come into your life and to lead you forward through all the costs and all the things that are coming so that you can follow him and have that eternal life with God. And Lord God, I lift up those in this room who have made that prayer this morning and ask that you'd be with them and guide them, lead them, let them sense your presence. And may they know that they're forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen.